And so before I say anything, I want to issue a little bit of a disclaimer to the men. I am genuinely sorry if any of this sounds insensitive to you. I am aware that the loudest voices in the feminist movement uh, have been angry and have been alienating and haven't always been sensitive to the issues that men face in the 21st century. These voices only perpetuate division and that's bad for everyone. So I am sorry if feminists have hurt you, but please try to not to switch off because this actually isn't just about female. It's every bit as much about male because, and not to issue a spoiler about the end, um, the message of the Bible as it pertains to gender and the point of this talk is God's desire for us all to know oneness. So minute, if I leave you, lose you at the first hurdle, then I'm already failing. You might have already picked up that what I'm going to say today is controversial. 59% of evangelical Christians in this country uh, believe that it is unbiblical for me to lead or teach in church or have any position of leadership over an adult man. That's not a small number, is it? Um, and Susie's okay because she's only leading worship. She's not teaching from the Bible. Lucky Susie. <laughs> I have uh, received both direct and indirect messages of, let's say, let's call them unsupportive, um, about what I'm doing and the legitimacy of my leadership of Red with Ed. Um, but I'm not going to not going to go into those stories now, I'm sure you can imagine them. Uh, before I get to the passage, uh, the, this question, what does the God of the Bible say about gender, arose very violently for me about nine years ago when I was pregnant with my oldest daughter. And I have told this story before, I'm sorry if you've already heard it, but it feels like a really necessary foundation for what I'm going to say, so I'm going to whiz through it again. So, by then I'd been in church um, I've been a Christian for four years and I did a lot of experiencing God, of experiencing him and the way that he felt about me through mainly um, ministry time at the front of church. I've done a lot of healing of the stuff that I had experienced in church. I'd also had made a lot of friends in church and I had also um, experienced how very healing it was to fall in love with a man that was nice to me. He actually was, he was a good man. This one? Well, he actually really is. Yeah. And he was nice to me, and that was all very new. Um, so kind of not to discount the other factors, but so by this age, I'm 28, and we are pregnant with our first child a little bit before we necessarily thought we'd be doing that, and certainly before anyone else we knew. And uh, we're going to get the scan at 20 weeks to find out whether it's a boy or a girl, but I think I already know. I think God has told me that this child is a boy. We know his name. We know everything about, you know, we can picture our lives together. And so when they give this gun and, the, and she goes, very clearly, I can see this is a girl. I am gutted. And Ed's kind of going, oh, wow, we're going to have a daughter. And I am very quickly realizing that I'm not just gutted because I was wrong and I've got to sort of rewrite this picture of what I thought was going to happen. As I get dressed and hold this picture in my hand and walk down the stairs of the hospital and wait at the bus stop with Ed and get on the bus, I am increasingly aware that I am very, very upset and I start crying, sobbing uncontrollably in public, which is not really my style. 
And I think Ed's sitting there going, what on earth is going on? And I don't know what's going on because this isn't something that I want to feel. Um, but what I'm increasingly aware of is that I believe I'm being given a gift of less value because she's a girl. And I don't know how or why I think this. So I, I spent some time on it over the next few days and I got some prayer and I, got, I spoke to some people that would just listen to me. And what I came to the conclusion, what was going on for me was that I was realizing my experience inside and outside church added up to the exact same thing. Because she is a girl, she will have less opportunity, she will have to fight harder, she will earn less money, she will be in more danger of assault. And I think I was aware that I believed those things of how life went for women outside church, but what was becoming very, very painfully clear was that I, I believed it was true of inside church as well. That's what was coming into sharp focus. <coughs> I'd seen a lot of child, uh, churches in my childhood in Europe, America, Africa, and Asia. We traveled a lot growing up. And I had never once, as far as I could recall, seen a woman leader. And in the four years I'd been back in church, I had had some really good teaching on women. But I still didn't have comprehensive answers to my biggest questions. And I still did not see many women at the front of church. Um, but the Bible was undoubtedly my biggest problem. I'd open this book and I'd see message after message after message that seemed to imply I was created with less value and less opportunity because I'm a woman. And therefore, the baby in my belly was of less value and would have less opportunity. And if this book is divinely ordained, do I actually now need to get my head around the fact that there's a divine order in all of this? So that all led me to a very active pursuit to end this question, this conflict. I wanted to understand how these two seemingly opposing forces of the personal and intimate relationship I was developing with God, and the fact that he made me feel very known as a woman and not in a limiting way, versus the pages of this ancient book and all its sexist meanness and how these two could fit together. And this is what I'd like to talk about this morning on the back of this passage in 1 Corinthians about head coverings. Does the Bible really consider women to be inferior? Does God actually think men should be in charge? Is there anything ultimately decided upon in terms of leadership or otherwise because of our gender? So, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is she independent of woman. 
For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. And it's that last line. Paul really isn't messing around here, is he? And let's be honest, it's not just this one. There is more gunpowder to the Patriots' musket, or rather more force to the argument that God values hierarchy in gender roles to be found just two chapters later when Paul commands that men must keep their wives quiet. Their wives who must be in submission as the law says. And there's more in 2 Timothy where it is outlined explicitly that women are not allowed to be in authority over men. <clears throat> well, the first thing that we need to know when we come to this passage and interact with it and work out what it means is commentators really don't agree on what he's going on about. It's agreed that he's probably responding to something that was described to him about what these women were doing. But that letter to Paul from either these women or people, other people in the community is lost. Nobody knows what it says. So nobody knows what they're doing. And even for really, really clever, Greeky, bible y people, his argument doesn't flow and is really hard to follow. Historians can't even agree what exactly they're talking about in terms of the customs that they would have been following. So there's a lot of argument about whether he's talking about wearing scarves or shawls or whether he's talking about tying their hair up appropriately. And there's more uncertainty regarding the meaning, meaning of other terms. He seems to interchange head, i.e. head, with head, i.e. the person in charge in a very confusing fashion. And no one actually knows what having down the head, which is actually what it says about men having long hair, not men having long hair, he says having down the head, no one knows what that means. So whatever they were doing, we don't know. The only thing we do know is that it was causing shame to people, and that's a problem to Paul. Why? Because relationships are being threatened. Church unity, church oneness is being damaged by whatever it is these ladies were doing. It makes sense to me that they were doing more of this unrealised eschatology stuff that we've been talking a, a, a bit about as we've gone through Corinthians. So they've heard the good news, they've discovered that they, as women, are included in the gospel, and they've leapt to some very strange conclusions. So very likely, a group of women, women have written to Paul to tell him that they've already realised their heavenly status, and it's to them that he's responding. So they believe that they no longer need their earthly bodies. They are like angels who don't need husbands or anything else because they now have no gender. And this makes sense of the very strange verse 10. It is for this reason that women ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And the more seemingly sensible verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Remember their cultural context. Both the uh, Jewish and the Greek traditions saw women as grossly inferior in all ways. I mean, actually, no need to sing about their cultural context. Let's be fair. Women have been, been viewed as grossly inferior throughout history. It's only really the two world wars last century that changed anything for us. It's incredible to think about it. If we had arrived anywhere other than the last hundred years, life would be very, very different for every woman in this room and a lot of the men. The, um, the universal subordination women is one of the big themes in the field of social anthropology. There are notable exceptions in history, so there are a few things, few places in history that haven't followed this rule. 
there's a few um, instances of tribal reverence of female or of the female workload, workload being um, valued in the same way in terms of family structures. But uh, essentially, this universal power imbalance is one of the things that anthropo anthropologists use to conclude that there is something universal about mankind. And obviously, there's a ton of argument as to why this is. But it's a simple fact. In almost every cultural context throughout history, man has ruled over woman. So these women have been taught in all fathomable ways that they were worth less than men. And then they've heard of this Jesus guy. He consorted with all sorts of women and clearly showed a massive amount of favor to them and said to a worldview that valued division, I've come to end it. So their understandable but very wrong conclusion was Jesus ended gender. And Paul can't tolerate this level of misunderstanding. Jesus, he says, did not end gender. Male and female were in God's original design for mankind, a point to which we will now turn our focus. Because even with this understanding of what the women were doing and what he, exactly what he was correcting, he still chooses to say it in a way that's pretty hard to argue with, right? So we've got these three pairings at the start as he sets out headship. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. We can really easily read that as guidelines for subordination. God is in charge of Christ, Christ is in charge of men, man is in charge of woman. Simple. However, here's the real clincher. Head actually doesn't mean captain or boss or leader. It's nothing to do with hierarchical structures of power. That's a mistranslation. The best translation of this word used for head is source. Jesus' source is God. Man's source is Jesus. Woman's source is man. And this is how the Corinthians would have heard it. And they would have known that Paul was bringing them directly back to the creation account as told in Genesis. And the line about woman being man's glory echoes that account too. So now we need to go there. Really quick side note, you can be a creationist if you like. That's absolutely fine. I'm not gonna argue with you about that in any way. I'll leave that to the science. But it's totally your prerogative. I happen to fall into the non-creationist camp. I don't believe that this is a literal account of what happened in seven days. With two actual people in an actual garden with an actual snake and an actual moment in time when all of humanity lost their perf perfection to be broken and sinful. My belief is that this is a story told orally for thousands of years within the Jewish tradition. And this story helps us come to very profound understandings about the nature of our relationship with our Heavenly Father, our relationship with our Creator, and His with us. And, just like the rest of the Bible, it's told within a cultural worldview that we need to understand. And, it's told to help us understand our very nature, the very crack at the centre of humanity. This story tells us about the crack. Um, Genesis chapter 1 is the first account of creation, which I'm just going to quickly go through. God creates heaven and earth. He spoke light, sky, water, earth, day, night, fish, birds, wild animals, reptiles, cattle, all the creatures into existence. He saw that it was good and he blessed them. Then he said, verse 26, 
Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Hint. Let us make mankind like we are, loving, secure, respecting, honouring, never jealous, never power hungry, never seeking to control anyone, so that they may rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock. wild animals and all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. I just want to look at that first because it's a good reminder, but it's actually the second creation account told in chapter two that Paul is referring to with all this source and glory stuff. God has made one Adam, or Ish, who's in charge of everything on the earth, then he makes Eve, or Isha, from his rib. So the rib is a symbol of side. It's a symbol of being of taken from the side to stand side by side, together, in charge of everything, just like the passage said before. Not on top of or below. He puts them side by side as two, and then he makes them one. This is part of the very big, very important story of the Bible. What we see in this story is that we are incomplete without other we are created in the image of God to enjoy what God has in the Trinity. We were created for oneness, oneness with God, with self, with each other, and with Eden. Eve is called Adam's glory because her creation enables this, them, this for oneness for them both. They can have oneness together, perfect communion and mutuality with an equal, just like God has with seven spirit. We, male and female, created for oneness. But then our oneness falls, becomes broken. Oneness becomes other. Otherness means fear, control, insecurity, lack of trust. It means desire to dominate. It means something very, very profound as it relates to these difficult passages in the New Testament. Husband, the desire to dominate, to be the head of your wife is a broken desire. Wives, the desire to be under your husband or indeed fight him for power is a broken desire. Anybody who ever tells you that men are in charge according to the Bible, that only men can lead according to the Bible, that women are subordinate and should submit and cover their heads, these people are getting this from the wrong story. The fallen story, the unredeemed story, they're drawing their theology from the wrong flipping places. And the Bible has a lot to say about the fallen story, but its point, its power, the thing it all points to is another story. The story of God made flesh, dying on a cross to end all the otherness once and for all. If, if anyone is in Christ and the new creation has come, the old is gone. And you and I and everyone else on this Christian journey are called to a life that moves beyond the fall, beyond all desire to dominate, beyond all otherness. It kind of changes some things, doesn't it? I reckon that the authority of the Bible is one of the most understood things in Christendom. I don't believe we can read it like it's a simple, literal self-help rule book and apply it to our lives passage by passage. The authority of the Bible lies in how it reveals Jesus' authority as the king of his kingdom. Jesus is the biggest story, and wherever there's a question, he's the answer. 
what Paul preaches over and over and over again, what Paul knew to be true in a way that far exceeded his fervour around these outlier gender division passages, was that all that divide was ended when Christ rose again and we are called to oneness. Galatians 3.28. More words of Paul. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He knew the big story of the Bible very well. He knew about Miriam, Deborah, Holder, Esther, leaders, prophets, teachers, and queens of the Old Testament. Paul had known all about them. He'd have also known all about Jesus' take on the whole thing during his lifetime, how he regularly defied Jewish customs by hanging out and being friends with women. He kind of made a point out of that. And he would have very much known about the work of women in his day. And I say very much because he often wrote about them. He referenced Chloe in this actual letter. Chloe, who had led an entire household to Christ, not her husband. She's a house church leader. My favourite's Jeriah. Paul mentions her in Romans 16, along with quite a long list of other women co-workers. There's an array of historical sources about the Apostle Jeriah's life. She was a travelling missionary like Barnabas and James. And Paul writes that she was outstanding among the apostles. So she'd have been leading, and teaching, and evangelizing, and mentoring men. And there's Priscilla, Phoebe, Lydia, all leaders, mentors, apostles, actual apostles, and church planters, all named. He didn't justify or qualify any of that. He's got not a word to say about it apart from praise. These women were doing their brilliant kingdom stuff, and it certainly didn't go against what Paul believed they could do within his cultural context of divide. You can't argue that some of this is biblical and some of it, this isn't, it just doesn't work. So, we're all one in Christ Jesus. One, like Adam and Eve, were made to be one in the story of creation. One, like God is one with the Spirit and the Son. It's the exact same word every time. One, together, love. Come back to Jesus. The, um, the history of mankind is built around gender division, and I believe that as a church, rather than spend any more time wrestling with, you know, or arguing with things about marriage roles and who can lead and who can't, we just need to start being light and salt now about the oneness. This is the wing of feminism that I associate with, the one that Jesus leads. It wants to bring oneness to a broken world. Oneness as it pertains to gender, race, social class, sexuality, and all other iterations of otherness that you can possibly fathom. Um, before I finish, I'm sorry, I realize this has been incredibly theological, theologically dry. It just feels like I can just brush over this passage and, and not show that what we believe isn't just a kind of case of like, oh, I don't know, I don't know what it really means, but we'll just leave it. When you, it's the case with any of this stuff in the Bible, in my experience, when you get to those things, there's always goodness to be found in it. Jesus is always the answer. But I'm just going to have a very, very small personal rant before I end. Because <laughs> I can't do this topic without it, sorry. I'm a huge proponent in all possible ways of moving away from gender stereotypes. So not ever assuming anything about anyone because of their gender. So never saying a godly man is this, A, B, and C, and never ever saying a godly woman is this, A, B, or C, she wouldn't be the same things, X, Y, and Z. Um, our 
cultural context increasingly tells us that we should see ourselves as outside of these things. And I don't believe that there's anything in the Bible that, is, that says anything against this. I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with finding our identity outside of defined gender roles. And I'll tell you why I feel so strongly about this. It's because I've never ever seen it do anything but damage to say anyone, you, your unique, one in a gazillion personality, character, everything that God has made you to be is defined by certain things that are just so narrow and undefined. Um, and as I think Ed's used this kind of language before, but some men want to build houses from trees and chop them down themselves and eat loads of red meat and internally process and regularly participate in team sports. Some men like calligraphy and talking about their feelings. Some women want to foster a feminine identity and care a lot about looking pretty. Some want to have babies and breastfeed them till they're seven and be excellent at baking. Others love single malt wh whiskey, wrestling, and have a messy bedroom. Lines caused by gender division in our age lead to very little else than pain and a lack of freedom, and I'm utterly convinced of this. I am one of five daughters, and I guess my experience of having beautiful, yet adventurous, wild, intelligent, leadery, amazing sisters has shown me we are not reduced by our gender in any way. And now I've got three daughters and two nieces, and we're all following the same pattern, and I believe it for everyone. Um, what I would like to do now um, is try and bring us back to life after some very heavy theology, <laughs> is um, sing a song. And I would like us to um, ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. I don't think that this is something that everyone in this room carries pain around. In fact, I'm very sure it isn't. But it is something that's relevant to everyone. And if you are a woman and you've been treated badly in church, or indeed a man and you have been treated badly in church, um, then we'd love to pray for you. I think the broader universal theme in this talk is that we have been so programmed by some bad teaching on the Bible and it's not a case of just hearing some other teacher teaching. I think these things get into our neural pathways and, and it's so hard to just change our minds about them. But my experience is the spirit changes this stuff. I've, I can tell you the spirit changes this stuff. And I was thinking particularly in the song what was it? Uh, set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain and I can't control. If God's mean and doesn't like you, I can. I could, I could just think, why would you even want to pray that? That's such a scary thing. But if God is for you and created you exactly as you are, that's an amazing, amazing thing. So let's um, try to let him in. Um, so we'll sing a song and then we'll go.